Good afternoon, New Hope. Uh, so today's scripture comes from 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 9 through 11. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. Okay, hi, New Hope. So, uh, as many of you know, uh, Pastor Rob is away at a conference in Washington, D.C. at a Nine Marks conference. So we have the distinct pleasure of having Pastor Ed here preach in his absence. Uh, as many of you know, Pastor Ed is a longtime friend, trusted friend of New Hope Fellowship. Uh, he's a senior teaching pastor at uh, North Shore Baptist Church. Uh, he's also uh, the main organizer for Camp Impact. And I can say uh, for myself, and I think safely I can say for many parents here, that Pastor, we want to say thank you. Um, the ministry that you have at Camp Impact has greatly blessed so many of our kids here. We just want to say thank you. And to highlight that even more, uh, this morning, when I was having breakfast with my daughter, Kate, Kate said, oh, Appa, who's uh, preaching today? Pastor Ed's away. Oh, sorry, Pastor Rob's away. And I said, Pastor Ed Moore from Camp Impact. And she said, yay, yippee. So we are so thankful to have you. We're blessed. We're privileged. Uh, we're thankful to have you back, Pastor Ed. Good afternoon. So this morning when I was having breakfast with my wife, I said, please remind me what do I have on the agenda for today? And she said, well, you'll be preaching at North Shore Baptist Church at 9 and 11. And then don't forget that this afternoon at 2.30 you will be at New Hope. And I said, yay, yippee. <laughs> <laughs> it is my joy to be back with you. Uh, this, I believe, is the fourth time you have granted me the privilege to speak uh, at your church. I remember Memorial Day weekend 2015 coming here and uh, enjoying the fellowship. And then I was asked once again in January of 2016. And then I do remember February 28th. 2016 being given opportunity to speak briefly when Pastor Rob was installed. Uh, that was a very high honor and then to be asked to come back today. Uh, it is my privilege to be with you here in this place and to proclaim the gospel. When I was a little boy we did not have a pool. I still don't have a pool. And so one of the joys of childhood that eluded me was the game Marco Polo. Uh, in fact, it wasn't even until I was an adult that I had even heard of this game or had seen anyone play this game. I didn't know anything about the children's game Marco Polo that is played in a pool. Let's pray. 
Father in heaven, we thank you that you have given us your church, and now as the church is assembled here this afternoon to hear the word of God, I pray that you will be with me and that you will enable me, Lord, to preach in a way, Lord, which will be clear and will be helpful. Lord, I pray that we would not be going through the motions today. I pray that I would not be reading words off of a page. I pray, dear Lord, that my mind will be engaged in what I am saying. I pray, dear God, that you would enlarge my heart and give me great love and compassion for the people that I am speaking to. I pray, dear Lord, that I would not be leaning upon myself or that I would not be leaning upon my preparation, but I pray that I would be resting and leaning upon your Holy Spirit. I would ask, Lord, for an unusual blessing from the Holy Spirit right now to enable me to communicate. And Lord, I would ask for an unusual work of the Holy Spirit to open people's ears and to open people's hearts this afternoon to receive the word with gladness. And may Jesus Christ be exalted in the process. Uh, This is what we pray in Christ's name. Amen. In 2008, my wife and I sent off our oldest son, Parker, to the state of Georgia to live with his grandparents for his senior year of high school uh, for two reasons. Number one, we did this so that he could become a Georgia state resident because he wanted to go to the University of Georgia where I went and where his mother went. And thankfully that worked out well. He did end up going to school there. The second reason why we sent him off to the state of Georgia for a year was so that he could play football. He had never played football, and he really wanted to have one season on a football team. And so when he arrived, in order to motivate him, I did something for him. And that is that I purchased three very inexpensive used DVDs and I mailed them to him and I insisted that he watch them. Rocky, Rudy, and the Pursuit of Happiness. Rocky, Rudy, and the Pursuit of Happiness. If you don't know those stories, they are basically all the same. And the story is this. There is someone who is an underdog. Someone who is getting no encouragement whatsoever from the outside. Someone who has to be self-motivated in order to get to the top. Rocky, Rudy, and the pursuit of happiness. Unfortunately, in the Church of Jesus Christ, we sometimes treat one another as if one another were either Rocky, Rudy, or the fellow that Will Smith played in the pursuit of happiness. That is, we treat one another as if we want one another to be self-motivated and to be self-encouraged, such as those three heroes were. But that is not the way the scriptures work. In the scriptures, we are commanded to encourage one another and to build one another up and to not expect one another to be encouraged or built up on their own. Let me read once again our text of Scripture today and make some comments on these words from God's Holy Word. 1 Thessalonians chapter 9, verses 9 through 11. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, 
who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. In light of this, what are we to do? Here is the command. Here is the imperative. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. Here are some things that I would like you to notice from the text. First of all, that word encourage. If we are to encourage one another, we are being godly or godlike. Because that word encourage is the Greek word parakaleo. And a form of that same word appears in the Gospel of John in the upper room discourse when Jesus was speaking to his disciples on the night in which he was betrayed. And he speaks of the Holy Spirit who is to come and he refers to the Holy Spirit as the comforter, as it says in the old King James. But the Greek word there is the paraclete or parakletos. So you have parakaleo and paraclete, which are from the same root, which means to encourage. So if the Holy Spirit is one who comes alongside and encourages, if we are encouraging one another, we are being godly, for we are being like the Holy Spirit. Furthermore, it is godly to be encouraging because our God is a God of encouragement. If you would look please over, look please in the book of Romans chapter 15. Notice what it says in verses 5 and 6. Romans chapter 15 verses 5 and 6. It says, may the God of endurance and encouragement, let's just stop right there. Our God is the God of encouragement. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Jesus Christ that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So if our God is the God of encouragement, we are called to encourage one another. When we are encouraging one another, we are godly. To be godly means to be godlike. There's something else I would like you to notice from this text, not only the word itself, but also the way that Paul goes about encouraging them. You see, he commands them to encourage one another, and in the process, he also encourages them through this little phrase at the end where he says, just as you are doing. So he's telling them to be encouraging, and then he encourages them by saying, Encourage one another just like you're doing right now. That would have been an encouragement to them. Coming along, telling someone that they are doing a good job is a form of encouragement. So Paul encourages them. But the main thing that I want you to see about this text on encouragement is that it is rooted in the gospel. What is the gospel? Well, the gospel is the simple truth and the central message of the Bible that there is a God and that this God is holy and that we have offended him and the way that we have offended him is through our sin. Uh, we have looked at his law and we have said to him, we will not have you to rule over us. We have each gone his own way. We are rebels against God. We have sinned either through passive indifference or through active rebellion, we are sinners. And as such, the wrath of God is upon us. We are deserving of hell and of damnation. 
The soul that sins shall surely die. But this God, whom we have offended, loves us. He loves sinners. And what has He done for us? Well, He loved the world so much that He sent His only begotten Son, Jesus Christ, to come and to be born of a virgin and to live for us. Jesus lived in our place. He completely fulfilled the law of God. He did everything that God required. He did it to perfection. And God looked down out of heaven at the baptism of his son and at the transfiguration and he made a proclamation and the proclamation was this this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased God was pleased with Christ and this well-pleasing son of God then did something for us in love that we could not do for ourselves he not only lived for us but he died for us Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. What this means is, is that on Mount Calvary, when Jesus was nailed to that cross, our sins were placed upon him, and not just our sins, but the penalty for those sins, which is death, the wages of sin is death, and God the Father, who is righteous, poured out his wrath upon Jesus, his son, on the cross in love. The penalty that you deserved, Jesus took in your place. He died for our sins. But here's the good news. He didn't stay dead. He rose to life again. He is alive today. He is alive forevermore. And he lives to be your Savior. And whoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now that is the gospel. And the gospel is that which drives Christian encouragement in this chapter 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, we see the gospel is that which anchors and that which propels and that which motivates and that which informs Christian encouragement. Look at the verses again. Oh, the love of God, verse 9, for he has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation. Thank you, Lord. And how does that salvation come about? through our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, how is it that we obtain the salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ? Verse 10, Jesus Christ, who died for us, that is the gospel, that Christ died for our sins, who died for us, so that whether we're awake or whether we are asleep, whether we live or whether we die, it really doesn't matter, because in the end, we are going to live with him. And then you see that word, therefore, in light of this wonderful gospel that says Jesus died for us to the point where it doesn't matter whether we live or whether we die, there is that word therefore, and the therefore means in light of this wonderful gospel, in light of what has just been said, therefore, here's what we're supposed to do. We are supposed to encourage one another and to build one another up. The doctrine of Christian encouragement has to be rooted and propelled by the gospel. Now, ultimately, everything that can be said to one who is born again could be encouraging because we are going to be in heaven. And at the end of the day, I can encourage you to press on, and I can be encouraging because of the gospel, because no matter how bad things get in the here and now, 
you have that hope of eternal life in heaven. And conversely, there is really nothing that I can say which would be of any encouragement to someone who is not born again, no matter how well things are going for you in the here and now. Let's say you get to be the king of the world, and let's say you can find a parking place everywhere you go, and you get the man or the woman of your dreams, and you have more than enough money, and you get that education, whatever it is that you want in this life, if at the end of the day you're going to be eternally damned, I do not have anything ultimately that can be of any real encouragement to you. So because of the gospel, as we as Christians are speaking to one another, we can really encourage one another objectively. So as I'm going to give you instructions today for encouragement, please do not forget that it is anchored in the gospel. This is not a pep talk. This is not a halftime speech. It's not a pat on the back. It is not how to win friends and influence people. It's not a motivational speech. I'm not going to teach you today how to flatter one another, which is a form of lying. I'm not going to teach you today how to motivate one another. I'm not going to encourage you today with the thought that you can catch more flies with honey than you can with vinegar. This is not a Tony Robbins seminar. This is the practical outworking of the gospel. Brothers and sisters, apart from receiving any encouragement from any other human being, we have objective reasons as to why we should be encouraged. I mean, think of it. You have your Bible. Uh, you have Christ. You are joined to Christ. You have union with Christ. You are indwelt with the Holy Spirit. You are adopted. You are justified. You are reconciled. You are going to be in heaven. So really, apart from anyone saying anything to you at all, you have many objective reasons why you should be encouraged. But yet God, in his infinite wisdom, knows that even though these objective realities are a part of our Christian experience, still we tend to get discouraged. And so in his grand design, he has told us that subjectively, we need to be speaking to one another and encouraging one another. Again, you have no valid excuse for being discouraged, but we still do get discouraged, and God knows that we get discouraged, and so he instructs us to encourage one another. Why do we become discouraged? Well, we are living in a discouraging world. And our adversary, the devil, roaming about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour, is discouraging. And you, when you have conversations with yourself, you discourage yourself. Paul says, I know that in me, that is in my flesh, dwells no good thing. And the media will discourage you. Sit in front of a television for an evening, look at it, listen to it, and you will become, spiritually speaking, discouraged. 
Maybe you have family members who discourage you. Maybe that crummy job that you're going to wake up to and go to tomorrow, you will be surrounded with people who discourage you. Maybe circumstances are discouraging you. Maybe there is a sickness or an illness in your body which discourages you. Maybe you are depressed emotionally and that causes you to be discouraged. Or in some other form, as Job puts it, 14.1, man born of woman is of few days and full of trouble. We live in a horribly discouraging world. And so what we need is one another. God in his wisdom has brought the church into existence for the purpose of giving encouragement. But we need to ask the question, why do we not encourage one another more often? Well, for some people it is more easy than for others. Some people will say, the reason that I do not encourage is because I, I simply was not raised that way. I never received encouragement myself, so I don't know how to encourage other people. I remember several years ago when my son Parker was a little boy and I brought him up to the platform during one of my sermons to give an illustration. The illustration was of how God loves his son. And so I brought Parker up on stage and I said, Parker, I want you to know in front of these people here today that I love you and that I am proud of you and that I am delighted that you are my son and that I am pleased with you. And I am so thankful to God that he has allowed you to be my son. I want you to hear this, and I want them to hear that. So please now go sit down. And I preached the rest of the sermon. I didn't think anything more about the illustration. And after the sermon was over, a dear old saint of the Lord, a woman who was in her mid-1980s, pulled me aside and she was weeping and she said to me, Pastor, when you told that boy that you loved him, it broke my heart because my mother and my father lived and died and never once did they ever tell me that they loved me. And so, what some people will say is, because I never received any encouragement myself, I do not know how to encourage other people. It just doesn't come naturally for me. And maybe people do not encourage in the church because they have seen abuses of encouragement in the form of flattery. Or maybe people do not encourage because they don't know how to encourage. Or maybe people do not encourage because they are hurting so much themselves that they don't even look beyond themselves because the pain is so bad through what, for what they themselves are going through. In which case, once again, through the gospel, let me point you to Jesus Christ. Never has a man been more hurting than Jesus was on the cross, yet what did he do? He took time to encourage the man hanging beside him and said, Assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. And he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son, and pointed to the apostle John and vice versa. Jesus, in his hour of agony, was encouraging others. So you cannot say, well, I can't encourage because I'm hurting so much myself. And maybe we do not encourage others because we are just so consumed with ourselves that we don't even think about other people. 
All we ever think about is ourselves, or maybe you do not encourage because if you were to give encouragement to someone else, you just couldn't do it because you are so jealous of them and you do not want them to receive that encouragement because it would just expose how inferior you feel to them. Regardless of why you do not encourage, once again, let me remind you that this is not a suggestion, but this is a command from Scripture that we are to encourage. So what does it look like? Let me tell you a Bible story. The Bible story is about a man named Joseph, although you probably do not know him by the name Joseph. He appears first in Acts chapter 4. He was known as the son of encouragement or Barnabas. It was a name that was given to him by the apostles. What did this man Barnabas do which was so encouraging? Well, let me give you three things from the book of Acts which he did which were encouraging. First of all, he owned a piece of property and he sold it and he took the money and he laid it at the apostles' feet. He gave financially, which was a great encouragement to the church. The second thing that Barnabas did, which was so encouraging, is that he gave encouragement to Saul of Tarsus, better known as the Apostle Paul, at a critical point in Paul's life. Uh, you know the story of how Paul, who is a Christ hater and a Christian killer is on his way to Damascus and he's going there with letters to arrest Christians so that they might be tried and so that they might be executed and as he's on the way he sees a bright light from heaven and he hears the voice and the voice says Saul Saul why persecutest thou me he's struck blind he goes into the city of Damascus Ananias comes to him three days later, prays for him, he receives his sight, and Paul then spends time with the Lord alone, and then Paul makes his way back to the city of Jerusalem, and when he arrives in Jerusalem, what does he want to do? He wants to meet the apostles, he wants to greet the saints, but when he gets there, the disciples are not eager to meet him, for they think it is a trick. This is the one who used to persecute the church. We are not going to meet with him. He cannot come and be a part of us. By the way, if you ever go to join a church and you are rejected, please take comfort, because the greatest Christian who ever lived, when he initially tried to join a church, was rejected. Why is it, though, that Paul eventually was accepted into the church in Jerusalem, it is because Barnabas, the son of encouragement, goes to the disciples and says, listen, he's the real deal. The Lord has appeared to him. He is one of us. And then for the next 15 days, Paul has fellowship with the brethren in Jerusalem. And that results in Paul being sent to Antioch, where from there he is sent out and Paul becomes the greatest Christian who ever lived, greatest missionary who ever lived, a man who wrote 13 books of the New Testament. Where does he get his start? He gets his start from the son of encouragement going to bat for him, Barnabas. What's the third thing Barnabas does? Paul and Barnabas are sent out from Antioch on the first missionary journey. 
They make their way down to Cyprus, and after they go to Cyprus, they sail up north to Pisidian Antioch, and they're making their way into the churches in the Roman region of Galatia. And all of a sudden, out of nowhere, we read this peculiar verse in Acts chapter 13, verse 13, which says, all of a sudden, one of their traveling companions, a young man by the name of Mark, or John Mark, decides to go home, and he just leaves. And we think nothing more of it. Paul and Barnabas complete their first missionary journey. They come back to Antioch, and then they go over to Jerusalem, and they have the Jerusalem Council, and then they come back to Antioch, and now they are ready to go on the second missionary journey, and Paul says, I'm ready to go, and Barnabas says, I'm ready to go, and they say, let's go, and Barnabas says, great, let's go. I'm going to get John Mark to go with us, and Paul says, no, no way. He's not coming with us. The one who had abandoned us earlier, he's not coming with us. And the dispute between Paul and Barnabas was such that Paul took a new partner, Silas, and went north. Barnabas took John Mark, and they sailed back down to Cyprus, and they parted. Now, I am not here today to debate which one was right, which one was wrong. I, I, I tend to say that Paul was, and here's why I say Paul was, because Luke and the story follows Paul and not Barnabas. However, when we get to the very last letter that Paul wrote, which was 2 Timothy, in the very last chapter, chapter 4, Paul is in a Roman jail, probably just days away from being executed, and he writes to Timothy, and he says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to get Mark, that is John Mark, and I want you to bring him because he is profitable to me, not just in general, but he's profitable to me for ministry. How does John Mark go from being a quitter to being one who is profitable to Paul for ministry? Encouragement. The encouragement of Barnabas. And so when you look at the ministry of Barnabas, the impact that he has on Paul, the impact that he has on John Mark, and I don't know about you, but I personally am glad that we have the book of Mark, which John Mark wrote. I'm glad that's in my Bible. God uses means. What was the means that he used? He used Barnabas. Now, what I'm about to tell you is not intended to be humorous, although you may think that it is, and you may think that it is a stretch and that it is an exaggeration. It is not. But brothers and sisters, I have never in my life known a child or a teenager who was worse than me. I can remember very distinctly. Uh, here's how bad I was. Here's, here's how bad I was. Three years ago, my aunt died. She was just a few years shy of her 99th birthday. I drove to Pennsylvania for the funeral. There was an old woman who could barely walk who hobbled across the room at my, my, my aunt's funeral to tell me that I was the worst behaved child she had ever seen. 50 years after the fact, she feels compelled to come tell me how horrible I am. But she was right. I remember very distinctly when I was five years old in preparing for the Christmas play, 
And I was supposed to step up to the microphone and give my speech, which was something like they took the babe and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger and then to move back. I had never been exposed to a microphone before. And these were those big microphones, those big silver microphones with a grill on them. And I realized when I spoke into it that your voice would be amplified. And so I walked up to the mic and I said, hello. Hello, please don't do that, Eddie. Please step back. Hello. It was cute. It was funny the first five or six times. But when they could not control me, they had to call my father, who came to the church and removed me. And on Sunday night, when all of my friends were in the Christmas play, I sat in the congregation and watched because I could not be controlled. In elementary school, you know how teachers will sit at their desk and children will sit in desks facing the teacher? My desk was right beside the teacher's desk facing the student. I wish this had happened today. What a wonderful lawsuit we would have. I had to sit for the entire year beside the teacher. Why? Because I could not be controlled. The first time I ever went off to youth camp, as we were having our orientation, I remember sitting in Pastor Ellenberger's house and him pointing a finger at me and in front of all of my friends saying to me, Eddie Moore, I swear if I have to come get you and bring you home, I'm going to kill you. Why didn't he say that to any of the other students? He didn't have to say that to any of the other students because none of them were like me. I was horrible. And then, 40 years ago, this month, something happened to me. Out of nowhere, sovereignly, mercifully, God called me to himself and he saved me. And I was broken of my sin. And I had this intense love for Jesus Christ. And I wanted to be in the church, and I wanted to serve in the church, and I could not get enough of the things of God. But I had a problem. You know what my problem was? My problem was that I was Eddie Moore, and no one took me seriously. And here I am striving to grow in my faith, but, 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 but I'm, I'm, and I have a well-deserved reputation of being bad, and there's no way for me to grow. Everybody rejected me except one person. His name was Jerry Hoover. He was a hippie, not a hipster, a hippie. When he got saved, his wife left him, and he was left to raise his two children by himself. This is before the days when they had youth pastors. What did he do for me? He read the scriptures with me. He prayed with me. He rebuked me. He taught me. He was my friend. I can remember very distinctly, Thursday, February 2nd, 1978, I was getting ready to wrestle the biggest match of my life. I was a wrestler against Frank Varachetti from Brockway, whose dad was a garbage man. And I was as nervous as could be. And that afternoon, I picked up the phone and I called Jerry. 
And he answered the phone, and I said, Jerry, I am very nervous right now. And he said, take your Bible and turn to John chapter 14, verse 27, where Jesus says, peace I leave with you. My peace give I unto you. Not as the world gives, give I unto you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. Now, I know 40 years later that the application of that does not apply to high school wrestling. I know that the hermeneutics probably were not the best. I know that my theology today and Jerry's theology back then would have been different. But here's what he did do. He picked up the phone. And he pointed me to the Bible. And not only did he point me to the Bible, he pointed me to Jesus Christ. And I can tell you, in every stressful circumstance that I have had over the last 40 years, the first place that I have gone is to John chapter 14, verse 27. And the place where I have gone more specifically is to my Savior, Jesus Christ. And the reason why I do that is because someone was willing to come alongside me and to encourage me in the Scriptures. And so I say to you, encourage one another and build one another up. In closing, I want to leave you with seven ways that you can encourage one another. First of all, number one, it's very simple. Pray with people. Pray with people. I did not say pray for people, although you should definitely be praying for people. I'm saying pray with people. There is a world of difference when someone comes to you with a problem and you say to them, I'm going to be praying for you, than to actually pray with them. I can remember in 2011 when I had my right hip replaced. Do not do this. The night before my operation, I went on YouTube and I watched a video of a hip replacement. Do not watch videos of surgery that you are about to have. As I went into the hospital the next day, I was very apprehensive. As I sat in the little cubicle waiting to go in and be cut open and to have a saw saw off my femur, as I'm going in very apprehensive, And I'm glad they do this in hospitals. They come in for the 15th time and they say, who are you, Edwin Moore? Where do you live, 3610 Clearview? Where do you work, North Shore Baptist Church? North Shore Baptist Church, you're, what do you do there? I'm a pastor. Oh, you're a pastor. One second. He steps outside of my cubicle. He motions for one of the nurses to come over and he says to her, Dear sister from the Caribbean, he's a pastor. I can still see the woman today. She looks to the left. She looks to the right. She steps in. She closes the curtain behind us. She walks up to me. She says, dear pastor, let me pray for you. She lays her hands on my shoulders, and she prays the most passionate, godly prayer. And it was as if someone had taken a bucket of warm water and poured it over my head, and the peace of God came upon me. See, as a pastor, I have been in hospitals all my life praying for people. 
And I just thought it was some sort of perfunctory thing that pastors are supposed to do. People are hurting, you pray for them. But it wasn't until I myself was prayed for in my hour of distress that I realized the power of praying for people. Here's the greatest thing you can do. Brothers or sisters are walking through the halls of the church. Someone is discouraged. You look at them and you say, hey, how you doing? Well, not so well. And they explain it briefly. Pray with them. Tremendous encouragement. Number two, rebuke. 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 The Bible says faithful are the wounds of a friend. Actually, rebuking someone is a great source of encouragement to them. Because if they're going the wrong way, and we live in this private society where, where, where peop, we talk behind people's backs, we think things about people, but because we love ourselves so much and we know that if we say something to the individual that then they are not going to like us, we just keep our mouths shut and we let people go the wrong way. Here's what you can do that is encouraging. Speak the truth in love. If anyone is taken into fault, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of meekness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. Several years ago, long before we had the GPS, a friend of mine who was visiting me when I was living in Columbia, South Carolina, said, I need to get to New York City. I said, it is the easiest thing in the world. Basically, what you do is you go up here, you get on I-20, you go east until you get to I-95, then you go north on I-95, take I-95 as far north as you possibly can. When you have taken I-95 as far north as you possibly can, you will be at the George Washington Bridge. It is as simple as can be. 20 east, 95 north. He gets on I-20 and he begins to drive and drive and drive and drive and drive and drive. He pulls over, he gets gas. Gets back on the road and he drives and he drives and he drives and he drives. And he says, you know what? I probably should ask directions because maybe Ed didn't know what he was talking about. He got off to ask for directions in Birmingham, Alabama. He did not go east. He went west. Now, let's suppose you are in the car with him. What does encouragement look like? Man. You are driving so well. You're using your mirrors. You're using your blinkers, two hands on the wheel. You're under the speed limit. I am so impressed with your driving. No, encouragement looks like this. Get off and turn around and go back. You're going the wrong way. Brothers, I have been so encouraged by people who have rebuked me. That is a great form of encouragement. Number three, we encourage through gospel reminders. The reason we encourage through gospel reminders is because we are always forgetting the gospel. I, as a pastor, am always forgetting the gospel. If I'm always forgetting the gospel, I have to think that others are forgetting it as well. So what we need to do when we are speaking to one another is just take one another back to these basic, basic truths that God loves you and that you are in Christ and that there is no condemnation to those that are in Christ and that Jesus has paid for all of your sins and that you are filled with the Holy Spirit and that you are joined to Christ and that you are adopted and that you are reconciled. The gospel, the gospel, the gospel. So often we give one another advice, but it is gospel-less. Any 
advice that we give one another, which does not include the gospel, is really just horse sense and it's meaningless. The gospel. Number four. Here's how you can encourage. And this is a word to those of you who are technologically savvy. Visit people in person. We live in an age where we feel as though we have done our part to minister to the brethren by sending a text or by sending an email. There's nothing wrong with sending a text or sending an email, but in our day of basically doing everything through text and through email or whatever, Facebook, whatever it is, we are losing something. You cannot replace the beauty of knocking on someone's door, walking in, giving them a hug, being in their presence. You can encourage. Maybe you don't even have to say anything which is profound. Just to be there and to see someone is such a form of encouragement. Number five, real quick and real practical. Money. Money. James says, if you see your brother or sister who is naked and destitute of daily food, and if you say to him, be warm and be filled, what have you really done for him? John the Baptist says, those who have two should give to those who have none. Paul talks about the encouragement that he received practically from those who met his needs. We live in a real world where money is useful. I can remember as a very poor young minister, a wife who was pregnant, working in Columbia, South Carolina, renting apartments for $5 an hour the day that Eric Slagle showed up and asked to borrow my car. It was a 1976 Buick Skylark. My father said of this car, take it, wash it, and then burn it. It is, it is worthless. Eric borrows my car and he comes back an hour and 15 minutes later with four new tires on the car. I wept. I couldn't afford four new tires. What an encouragement. And this is over 25 years ago. But the encouragement lasts with me to this day. Number six, real simple. Anybody can do this. The New Testament is flooded with these commands, and it says, greet one another. You don't know what the person has been going through at home or on the job, in their family or on the way to church. Someone walks into the church and basically you bypass them or you just kind of wave at them. It has a discouraging effect. But when someone walks into the church and we greet one another with a holy kiss and we are warm toward one another, it is a tremendous source of encouragement. And then finally, here's the last thing. If you see something, say something. If you see something, say something. Encourage one another and build one another up. If you see a brother or a sister who is serving the Lord and the gifting of God is upon them, and they are giving it a good effort, 
Why in the world would you withhold your words? Why would you not say thank you? Why would you not say I appreciate that? About a year and a half ago, there was a young man who was a minister who did something and it was very, very brief and I sent him a very, very brief text and I said, good job, I'm proud of you. Six months later, he was doing something else and thinking nothing of it, I sent him another text and I said, good job, that was very helpful, I'm proud of you. He pulled me aside after the second time and he said, the first time you sent me that text, I showed it to my wife, and I sat and I wept uncontrollably. I said, now I cannot handle it because you have done it now a second time. He said, you know, my father is not a Christian. He said, and this is the first time a man has ever come alongside me and told me that he was proud of me. And I thought to myself, why? Why? How difficult is it to say, thank you, good job, I appreciate that. Why are we so stingy with our words? If you go into a greasy spoon restaurant and someone who is making minimum wage walks up and fills your water glass from halfway all the way to the top, you will turn to that person and you will say, thank you. How in the world can someone stand and preach the Word of God and study before they preach and stand at this pulpit and give you the living Word of God and you do not even acknowledge that it happened? Should we not be the most encouraging people in the world? How difficult is it when we go and pick up our children and people have been in there watching our kids and the kids have been going crazy, how difficult is it to say, I just want you to know, I appreciate what you are doing for the kingdom of God. Or someone plays the guitar or someone sings or someone is serving, really, is it that hard? to come alongside them and pat them on the back and say, thank you. Husbands, your wives who are cooking for you and serving you, would it really be that difficult to say, thank you, I appreciate you? Children, your dads who are going out and working really hard, and your mothers are working really hard, and you've got clothes on your back, And you've got a place to sleep at night that is really warm for you to come along and say, Dad, I don't know everything that you do at work, but boy, thank you so much. I appreciate it. Parents, for you to turn to your children and say, I appreciate you. You are valuable to me. Good job. Thank you. Why would we as the people of God be stingy with our words when the Word of God says, encourage one another and build one another up? I am not here today to beat you up or to beat you over the head. I'm just saying, brothers and sisters, God knows that we are a discouraged people. And God knows that we need encouragement. And that is why 
based upon the gospel, he says, encourage one another and build one another up. You see, here is what is happening in the church. It's like the game Marco Polo. People are trying to serve the Lord. They're walking around with their eyes closed. Marco, Marco, Marco. Here's what they need to be hearing. Polo, Polo, you're going in the right direction. Come on, keep going. Polo, Polo, Marco, Polo, Marco, Polo. You're going in the right direction. Otherwise, we are just going blindly through this, hoping that we're doing the right thing. No, 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 no. What we need is people who, when they see something, will say something and say, I just want you to know, sister, you are doing a great job. Keep going. What a value that would have in our congregation. I don't have any idea how long I preached today. All I know is that it was too long. Uh, And I think I've said uh, everything that I need to say. Father in heaven, please take this word and use it to bless your people in Jesus' name. Amen.